Transmitter device activated. Coordinate set for Earth 2. Hey everyone, welcome to a very special episode of the Earth 2 podcast. The podcast that explores the origins and development of the DC Comics multiverse and the legacy of their Golden Age characters throughout the Silver and the Bronze Ages of comics. I'm Peter Watson. And I'm David Steele. Welcome back. Thank you for joining us. Yes, as Peter says, it's a special episode this week. We're doing things a little differently because we have some important stuff to talk about. Mm-hmm. This week's episode is chiefly prompted by the publication on the 25th of August 1970 by issue 133 of Jimmy Olsen, or Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen, to give it his full title. And also in turn, technically, by the publication on the 24th of November 1970 by issue 135 of Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen. Why these issues? Well, as you probably know, these are the issues where Jack Kirby arrived at DC Comics, yes. took over Superman's pal, Jimmy Olsen, and reintroduced, first of all, the Newsboy Legion, and then, a couple of issues later, a new version of their pal, The Guardian. Isn't that right, Peter? It certainly is, David. It certainly is. So, we're not going to read any stories to you this week, and this is this might be disappointing. <laughs> we're just going to talk in general. Mm-hmm about Kirby coming to DC, what he did with the Newsboys and The Guardian, and a little bit about some of the other stuff that he did at DC in the early 70s. Peter, where are we going to start? Well, that's a very good point. Where do you start with Jack Kirby? Now, as everyone who's listening to this probably knows, Jack Kirby was basically one of the main driving forces behind Marvel Comics in the 60s. Mm. Everyone thinks of Stan Lee, but basically Jack Kirby pretty much designed Marvel in the 60s. Yep. He was basically the main creative force behind all the characters that you know and love from Marvel. Of course, like the Fantastic Four, obviously. Indeed, yes. The Incredible Hulk, Thor, the original mm-hmm. X-Men. Yeah. on the Avengers, you know, most most people listening will know all this stuff, so. Of course, yes. Now, Jack had previously worked for DC mm-hmm. on and off through his history, uh, most notably in the 40s when he worked with Joe Simon and created such characters as... The Guardian and Newsboy Legion. Yes. As the Manhunter that we discussed before, both the second Paul Kirk Manhunter and indeed the Rick Nelson Manhunter, <laughs> who I'm still saying is a separate character. I'll stand by that. I agree completely. Uh, <laughs> and obviously revamped uh, Sandman and gave him Sandy the Golden Boy as a sidekick. Mm-hmm. Amongst other things, they did tons of stuff. And of course, then Timely, as it was then known, created Captain America with Joe Simon. And basically the two of them together were massive creative forces. And indeed separately, massive creative forces. But yeah, he had gone between the two companies over the years. Mm-hmm. In the 50s, he found himself at DC doing such titles as Challengers of the Unknown. Yes. Which we, again, we've talked about previously in the podcast. Mm-hmm. And he was doing a lot of the sci-fi anthologies. For example, he did an episode of Tales of the Unexpected, issue 16, which had a character that basically was a normal person who finds Thor's hammer and uh, becomes Thor. <laughs> well then. <laughs> so yeah, that was fun. But then, as the 50s were starting to come to a close... Kirby's relationship with Jack Schiff, who was an editor at DC Comics, began to sour. Now, Jack Schiff helps Kirby get a newspaper strip about the space race, but he demanded more of a finder's fee than Kirby felt was warranted. Now, the two ended up in court, and Schiff won the suits. So, Jack Kirby felt he had to return to Martin Gooden's company, Marvel, as his only viable option for supporting his family. Okay. He'd basically burned his bridges at DC then. Pretty much, yeah. Yeah. So, and obviously, 
history was made because that's what made Marvel. As we know, the Marvel Universe proper kicked off with Fantastic Four number one, drawn by Jack Kirby, written by Stan Lee, and yeah, came out in August 1961. The Marvel Age of Comics dawned. Absolutely. Throughout the 60s, Jack was working through Marvel, creating all these fantastic concepts, working, as you said, titles like Thor. And most often it would be him coming up with the concepts, the actual storylines, with some input from Stan Lee. And obviously Stan Lee would do his over-the-top dialogue on it, which is great fun. Yeah, it's the whole Marvel style, isn't it? When Mm -hmm. they'll talk about the plot and then the artist will draw it and then Stan will come in and write the dialogue over the top of it. Yeah. Yeah. While working in Thor, Jack had an idea for actually building up to and doing Ragnarok. The Fall of the Gods. Now, there's a rumour that he had actually planned to destroy most of the Asgardian gods and have new gods rise from them. Ah. But I can't find anything to substantiate that. That's just a rumour that's floating around. Interesting. Because he had the idea of of the new gods for quite some time before that. Now, Jack was kind of getting a bit tired of the Stan Lee bombastic taking credit for everything approach that was predominant at Marvel, especially with things like the Silver Surfer, a character he created. And Stan was like, who's this guy? You've just drawn in. And Jack was basically saying, well, if you're having Galactus as God, you need kind of like a, a herald. You know, you need someone to go out and preach the word. You need a Jesus figure. You need that. Sure. You know. Yeah. Jack had plans for the Silver Surfer further down the line, but Stan took that away from him and basically gave it to John Buscema to do the Silver Surfer series, which totally ruined any plans that Jack had for the character. Sure. There were other things that happened as well, but that's probably one of the best well-known ones. Mm -hmm. But yeah, throughout the 60s, Jack was starting to get a bit tired of Marvel. I'm going to read a bit out from this fantastic book. It's called Old Gods and New, a companion to Jack Kirby's Fourth World. It's a Tomorrow's book, and I highly recommend it. It's sensational. It's got interviews with loads of people, including uh, historic interviews with Jack himself. There's interviews with Mark Ivanier Mm -hmm. and other people like that. And Mark Ivanier says, Kirby was very unhappy at Marvel in the late 60s. Put simply, he felt that he was contributing more to the scripts than Stan Lee was. But Stan was getting the writing fee and credits. Jack also felt that the company's owner-publisher, Martin Goodman, had promised all sorts of bonuses and financial participation in the success of Marvel, and was now pretending he hadn't. There were other lesser squabbles, but in Jack's mind, they all flowed one way or another from those two perceived wrongs. Now, beginning around 1967 and continuing thereafter, Jack was approached every few months by people who said to him, in essence, I'm starting a new comic book company. Marvel is screwing you over. And if you come to work for me, I'll treat you right. The Kirby response to such approaches was to say something like, I might be interested, keep me posted. But privately, Jack did not believe any of these wannabe publishers would ever secure the necessary financing. And even if they did, they'd never get their wares distributed. Independent news, that is, DC Comics, was the Godzilla of magazine distribution and was not about to let a new player into their game. This is Kirby's view I'm giving you here, but it was not uncommon belief at the time. Now, listeners, think back to his name is Kane for a moment. When we did that story from House of Mystery a few months ago. Yes, because Mark Ivanier continues. In Jack's case, it was reinforced by the experiences of his friend Gil Kane, when Kane attempted to become a publisher. His Adventure House Press managed to get one issue of His Name is Savage onto newsstands, and not even very many newsstands. Then to hear Kane tell it, pressures were brought that cost him his printer and distribution. Over a tearful lunch, Kane told Kirby that he'd been sabotaged, that the big boys had conspired to squeeze him out of the business. Oh dear. I have no idea how true this may have been. The point is that Gil believed it, and Jack believed it. Aspiring publishers came to him and talked about putting out a new line of comics so terrific it would drive DC and Marvel off the news tracks and into the one-hour dry-cleaning business. 
<laughs> Each time Kirby advised him to forget that as a goal. Conventional comic book distribution, he told them, was a rigged game. Worse than that, it was a rigged game that was on its way out. He urged them instead to look into publishing comics in book form. There you go. Yes, Gil Kane, it's all back to that again. Yeah. As to how DC basically manipulated the whole distribution market. Uh-huh. There's a very, very sort of similar quote from Mark Ivani in the introduction in the first DC trade paperback of the Jimmy Olsen mm-hmm. stories that he did, reiterating this, not getting enough credit. And of course, Marvel was sold mm-hmm. at this point, and all sorts of promises apparently were made to Jack that weren't fulfilled. Yeah. So again, this is another thing that's contributing to his, I suppose, his dissatisfaction. Mm-hmm. Now, back in 1967, Kenny National Services had purchased... National Periodical Publications, so they were the new owners of DC Comics. Right. Now, around that time, Carmen Infantino had been appointed DC's art director. And, importantly, editor Jack Schiff had retired, removing a big impediment keeping Kirby from ever returning to DC. However, others, most notably editor Mark Weisinger, still held a grudge, fueled even more by the fact that Kirby's Marvel Comics of the era were just starting to outsell DC's own. DC were still the leaders by far, but right. things were changing. But Carmine, who'd worked for Kirby and Joe Simon's studio years before, he didn't have any resentment. Instead, he thought the potential of hiring away Marvel's top creator would be a feather in his cap. So, in 1969, when Infantino was promoted to editorial director and Weisinger announced he'd be retiring, which he finally did in June 1970, the only thing stopping Kirby from working for DC was the prospect of securing a better situation at Marvel. And... Infantino was intent on in getting Kirby over to DC, so he was going to give him the best deal he possibly could. Now, one account had Infantino visiting the Kirby's home for Passover, which would have been in April 1969. But there's another account that says he met with Carmine at an LA hotel to discuss the possibility of moving to DC. And I've got a quote here from Jack Kirby that was from an interview in 1982 in okay. Comic Scene Issue 2. And it says, I was living here in California, in Irvine, I get a message that Carmen Infantino is out in California and wants me to come up to his hotel. To make it short, they wanted me to save Superman. I said, well, I wasn't too happy with what was happening at Marvel. I thought maybe this is the time to change. And there's a quote as well from an interview with Carmen Infantino from 1999 that also recalls these events. Carmine says at this meeting, Jack Kirby then trotted out three pieces, the New Gods, Mr. Miracle and Forever People. He said... These I want to do, but I won't do them for Marvel. Wow. Yeah. Let's pause on that for a second. Imagine he had stayed at Marvel. Yeah. You know, would we have seen Mr. Miracle in the MCU by now, etc.? Crikey. Would the Eternals have ever happened? You know what I mean? Yeah, I've got a feeling the Eternals wouldn't have happened if New Gods yeah. was allowed to continue. A couple of years ago, listeners, before the movie came along, I, I put together a full set of the 70s Marvel Eternals series and... I didn't get very far, <laughs> it must be said. And as we'll discuss later on, I haven't read very much of the New Gods stuff either, but I think the New Gods mm-hmm. is better than the Eternals, quite frankly. Yeah, I would definitely say so. So much richer, so much richer. Uh-huh. Without a doubt. Anyway, back to the plot. One of the things Carmine promised Jack was that he had full editorial control over his comics, mm. and they were going to be published bi-monthly to give him a chance to actually get them done. So... Jack was going to be writing, editing, and dialoguing his own comics, Yep, which he'd been clamouring for. Now, Jack's overall plan was basically he would establish this line of comics. It's almost like he'd have his own imprint. Sure. After they were established, he was going to move on to new projects and have people that he had trained up to take over those existing projects. Mm -hmm. At this time, roughly, he hired on Mark Ivanier as an assistant. And Mark actually indeed contributed a couple of story ideas. He downplays it a lot in, in this book. 
but in a sense, literally just one or two of them were mentioned in passing. But I think he's possibly had a bit more input than that, given how much he worked in the New Gods later on. Of course, yes. So there's another interview with Jack Kirby from 1971, again quoted in, in the New Gods book, saying, I can only say that DC gave me my own editing affairs, and if I have an idea, I can take credit for it. I don't have the feeling of repression that I had at Marvel. I don't say I wasn't comfortable at Marvel, but it had its frustrating moments, and there was nothing I could do about it. When I got the opportunity to transfer to DC, I took it. At DC, I'm given the privilege of being associated with my own ideas. If I did come up with an idea at Marvel, they'd take it away from me, and I lost all association with it. I was never given credit for the writing, which I did. Most of the writing at Marvel is done by the artist from the script. It's the same old story, really, isn't it, about you know creators and yeah. their rights being taken away? Absolutely, and the frustrations that they feel and the sense of, you know, why am I even doing this? These other guys mm-hmm. want to let me do this and they'll give me this. So, yeah, it's, it still goes yeah. on, doesn't it? Yeah. Jack continues as well. He says, I was faced with the frustration of having to come up with new ideas and then having them taken from me. So I was kind of caught in a box and had to get out of that box. So when DC came along and gave me the opportunity to do it, I took it. I believe working for DC can lead to other experimentation and a better kind of comic book. And the kind of comic book that could lead to all sorts of different things. Blimey. Also in a separate interview, he then says, They wanted me to work with Superman, but I didn't want to interfere with the work that was being done by the other men. I felt I could create my own novel. I took Jimmy Olsen because it was a dog. It didn't have the (laughs) sales of Superman, and I felt the best way I could prove myself was taking a book that was slow and speeding up its sales. Yes. That way to prove yourself. And so I took Jimmy Olsen, and Jimmy Olsen became part of the series of books I did for DC. They all made money. Jimmy Olsen was making money. DC couldn't believe it. Now, this ties into the kind of apocryphal story that uh, when Jack went to DC, he said, give me your lowest selling book. Yes. And they said, yep, here's Jimmy Olsen, because yeah. Jimmy actually was he was a top 10 book, Aye. roughly at the time. Yeah. I think he was the lowest selling of the Superman yeah. family books. Yeah. But still, it was making money. Yeah, because Mark Ivani says in the introduction to volume one of the collected Jack Kirby, Jimmy Olsen's, that basically Jack didn't want to get in anyone else's road. So he took a book that didn't have a, a creative team on it at that point. Mm-hmm. It wasn't so much that nobody wanted to touch Jimmy Olsen. It was just, you know, because bear in mind, we're not too far away from issue 233 of Superman. That came out in November 1970. Mm-hmm. That's the famous one with the Neil Adams cover of Superman breaking the kryptonite chains. Kryptonite no more. Uh, no more, indeed. So obviously there were plans for, for the main Superman title. Yeah. Uh-huh. So it was probably safer just to steer Jack towards Jimmy Olsen and let him go nuts, basically. Yeah, that's true. Mark Vanier also says in the book here that Jack was promised all sorts of things on a casual basis. Carmine would say, yeah, sure, we'll discuss that. But I don't think he really got any firm promises. Carmine understood that Jack wanted to launch books and then turn them over to others, but he never promised him it would happen. And even if he had, Carmine would often say things like, I want to do this, but the guys upstairs are overruling me. Interesting. Basically, DC kind of felt that if they've got these books that are selling by this creator, why would they change creators on it? Sure. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, from a business point of view, but from obviously, from an artist's point of view, he wants to go out and create more stuff. Sure. So that kind of leads us up towards the end of the fourth world era of Kirby. And then obviously those titles kind of fell by the wayside and other titles like, you know, Demon, Commande and uh, Omak and all that. Yes. from the ashes of that. I need a short period, of course. We can't forget working on the losers in the pages of our fighting forces. Of course, yes. Completely unlike any other losers' stories. But, you know, <laughs> very interesting. 
I think we've, we might have touched on this in the podcast before. There's a real mm-hmm. unique quality to 70s Jack Kirby comics, I think, especially yeah. the DC mm-hmm. ones. And I, I think mm-hmm. Eternals to an extent, and maybe the Black Panther, because he went back to Marvel, obviously, yes. once his, his DC sort of experiment sort of petered out. You have to be in the right frame of mind, I think, for it. Without a doubt, yeah. <laughs> you have to be in the right sort of zone. I mean, I, I've i owned a full set of the Jack Kirby, Jimmy Olsen stuff for years. Mm-hmm. The main reason I bought them was because the, the 52-page issues reprinted some of the Golden Age Newsboy Legion stories. And obviously, the Newsboys and the Guardian yeah, yeah. were characters I was very fond of anyway. So they were, you know, mm-hmm. that's why I collected all them. But I'd never really read them properly all the way through until we started the preparation for this episode. And <laughs> it was almost like indigestion at points. Oh, dear. And I, and I don't mean that necessarily as a bad thing. Because, you know, you could eat chocolate cake for every meal. Or you could eat pizza for every meal. But you'd get a bit tired of it eventually. So it's good to mix it up. Yeah. So cramming on all this Jimmy Olsen, Jack Kirby stuff. Whilst it was great, it was like, oof. <laughs> I need to go for a walk now. Walk some of this off. It's a bit rich. It's not even the case that it's of its time. It's just so unique. I don't think any other creator was working in such a style because it's no. it's very hard to define, but there's a real sense to the storytelling that's, mm-hmm. I think, unique to what Jack was doing at this point. I mean, yeah. in some regards, the layout is very similar to a lot of his Marvel stuff. But yeah. obviously, because he's writing it himself, it's maybe a little clunkier, a little unpolished compared to maybe what some of the other people like Stan might have done over the top of it. Uh-huh. And the artwork almost borders on caricature sometimes, the way some of the characters are rendered. Mm-hmm. And this is where I have to be brutally honest and say that I haven't really read an awful lot of the 70s Kirby stuff. I've dipped in here and there. <gasps> Gasp. I've got the hardback collections of stuff like The Demon and The Losers and Mac. I had a few issues of New Gods and Forever People here and there because of the reprints. And I'm kicking myself that I don't still have New Gods because of what you told me about the Manhunter stories not being reprinted. You've probably read a lot more of this than me. Is that sort of fair? Yeah, it's interesting. I'm kind of like the flip side of, of you there because I've got full runs of the New Gods, Mr. Miracle and uh, Forever People. But I've actually I've only got a spotty Jimmy Olsen collection from this period. <laughs> right, see, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I've always well, not always loved Kirby. Kirby was one of these artists that I really liked as a kid before I actually knew who it was. Sure. And as a teenager, I was like, "Oh, what's this? Oh, I don't like this." Blah blah blah. And then I grew up <laughs> and saw what he was actually doing, and I thought, "This is phenomenal." Yes, it is phenomenal what he's doing. But as I say, I found when I was reading the Jimmy stuff in preparation, the more I read, the easier it got to read it. Mm-hmm because you get more in tune yeah. with what mm-hmm. Jack was trying to do. I think on balance, you must have read a heck of a lot more of the New God stuff than I have. Yeah. Uh-huh. I just really know them all from the way that they were kind of broadly fed into the DC continuity a lot more after the 1986 mm-hmm. reboot with Legends after Crisis and all, all yeah. that sort of yeah. stuff, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. Because obviously Intergang and the Cadmus stuff and, of course, the Guardian yeah. and the Newsboys were fed into the Superman mm-hmm. titles. You know, members of the, of the New Gods turned up in the Justice League for a while. There was countless mm-hmm. attempts to relaunch New Gods series over the years. Yeah. That's one interesting thing we'll talk about further, obviously, is the, is the, is the legacy of what Jack did at DC that, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of his ideas and his characters have, have hung around. See, I, I always consider Jack Kirby to be that important to comics that his transition from Marvel to DC is basically the cut-off point for me for silver to bronze age of comics because it's such a big shake-up for for the big two yeah a lot of stuff is changing around that but i think if you're going to go for an actual cut-off point then i think that is for me that's the cut-off point yeah that's fair i mean it's really interesting to think how big a deal it was because Hmm. dc were trailing it constantly yes kirby is coming by the time this episode is released i'll already have put a few house ads and stuff up in the socials hinting at what we're kind of building towards you know with this episode and the the lowest lane episode we did recently 
it's the first instance I can think of on a DC comic when the artist and writer's name is on the cover as a selling point. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. You go to issue 133 and Kirby is here, is at the very top. So that's obviously following yeah. on from Kirby is coming and then following issue, a king-size Kirby blockbuster. That happens again in issue 135. Yeah. It's a really big deal and, you know, I remember, you know, in my teens as a sort of neophyte comic collector and noticing that how rare it was. DC mm-hmm. at that point seemed to do it more than Marvel. Now it's quite a standard thing for creator names to be on the cover of the comics. Yeah, yeah. In 1978 was incredibly unusual. <laughs> <laughs> and it just shows what a big deal it was that they would put his name yeah, on the cover because so. they knew that this was that there was this anticipation mm-hmm. for it. Mm-hmm. So we talked about Jack and everything that he did for Marvel and he set up. What was his final comic for Marvel then? It was Fantastic Four 102, which came out in the 9th of June, 1970. Now, David. Yes. Right back at you. What was his first published work at DC when he came back? Oh, his first? Good. All oh, right. See, I'm glad you qualified that. Well, as I said at the top, issue 133 of Superman's Pal, Jimmy Olsen, came out on the 25th of August, 1970. So that's about two months there. There that's you are. crazy to think about. It's such a narrow space <laughs> of time, isn't it? Uh-huh. To think about. And he know. probably banked so much stuff in the meantime, you know, because he, he was just a creative machine. Am I right in thinking that when he left the, F- the Fantastic Four, it was basically in the middle of a story? I can't remember. It's been a while since I've read it. Because it, it was in the middle of a story with the Submariner, wasn't it? Yeah. I think Magneto was involved. He mm-hmm. certainly was involved in it by that time in, in the FF. But I can't remember the exact story. It's been a long time since I've read it. I've got a couple of issues of Marvel's Greatest Comics from around that period that reprint some mm, of those sort yeah. of, you know, mm-hmm. transitionary issues. Sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But of course... We're not a Fantastic Four or Submariner or Marvel Comics podcast, so we're not going to go into too much detail on those. What we're going to do now is give you a bit of a loose walk through the Jack Kirby issues of Jimmy Olsen and what he did with the, the Newsboys and the Guardian. Yay. Don't worry, I'm not going to give you 15 densely plotted synopsis of the stories. We're just going to have a little chat about them and the main sort of takeaways and the main sort of plot elements and, as I said, how the, the Guardian and the Newsboys are used. So the, the Newsboy Legion and The Guardian first appeared in Star Spangled Comics, issue 7, and that was published on the 4th of February 1942, and they ran all the way up to issue 64, which was published on the 6th of November 1946. Peter! Yes? Can you remember when you first encountered The Guardian and or The Newsboy Legion? I can't remember The Newsboy Legion at all. Probably in one of the Jimmy Olsen comics that I got when I was younger. One of these comics we're about to talk about, but I couldn't narrow it down to one. Guardian... I first remember hearing of the character when Mal Duncan took on the persona ah. in an issue of Teen Titans much later on. I had no idea about this character. Which we will we will talk about those issues, obviously. When we get to them. Mm-hmm. What about yourself? Well, I've been trying to remember, and I think... Now, bear in mind, throughout the 80s, I wasn't really reading DC Comics and was a Marvel mm-hmm. fan from about 1985 onwards. Yeah. A couple dipping my toes in with DC briefly during sort of 86, 87, but became committed DC fan sort of late 91, early 92. Mm-hmm. And The Guardian, more so than The Newsboys, was being used quite regularly in the Superman comics at this point. Yeah. And a lot of the elements that Kirby introduced to the DC universe in, in this Jimmy Olsen series mm-hmm. were being used regularly in the Superman yeah. comics by this point. And uh-huh. we'll, talk about, we'll talk about some of those as we go kind of thing, but stuff like the DNA project, which... Features yes. throughout that became that evolved into Cadmus. Mm-hmm. Pete characters like Morgan Edge and Intergang were used much yeah. more mm-hmm. regularly, and much they were really integrated into the foundation of what what was happening in the Superman comics. So it's kind of odd. Mm-hmm. I mean, the Guardian is one of my favourite DC superheroes, and I think it really comes from 
reading his appearances in All-Star Squadron. Yeah. And there's a really good Superman annual. I think it's Superman annual issue two, post-crisis, which is, I didn't read it at the time, but I've read it since. That was the one that really introduced the Guardian and the Newsboys properly mm-hmm. and set up their kind of contemporary modern sort of status quo. Excellent, yeah. If we did a Patreon listeners, we'd probably do the story from the 40s where the, the Guardian and the Newsboys teamed up with the Boy Commandos and Sandman and Sandy. Yeah. Maybe we'll do that when we get to the very end <laughs> of our project. <laughs> maybe we'll go back and do that one just for the sake of it. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah. I like the Guardian because he's, as I've said in the past, he's like Mr. Terrific and like the Sandman and Tarantula. He was, to me, he's a bit more interesting because there's no superpowers. He's just a good guy doing the right thing. Yeah. There are some really good stories that use him and really, I mean, he's in many ways he is DC's equivalent of Captain America. Uh-huh. Blue costume, the shield and all that. Good guy doing mm-hmm. the right thing. Street level to an extent you know kid psychics and it's that sort of purity that i really like mm-hmm. it's very difficult to remember the like yourself the exact first time that i first encountered them mm. it's very difficult it's funny you should mention his shield there because in his very first appearance guardian's got a shield that's more like the original captain america shield it's more kind of like pointy yeah with a like a flat top Peter is miming pointy for you, listeners. <laughs> hope you appreciate that yes listeners if you pay attention this is how you mime pointy there you go. That's, that's perfect. Good, well it? done. Yeah. <laughs> I, I might have done this, but that's just me. <laughs> but it fairly quickly changed to a more round shield with a top bar. Yes. Uh, again, I just mimed top bar there mm-hmm. <laughs> to, make it more like, to make it look more like a police shield. So, yeah. Yeah, and as I said, he features an All-Star Squadron quite prominently. It's a really good story in mm-hmm. All-Star Squadron Annual Issue 1, I think it is that also uses Wildcat and the Atom. So that's one that I'm especially Mm -hmm. looking forward to dealing with in a few years' time. Yeah. Now, I should quickly say something about the creation of the Newsboy Legion and the Guardian. Joe Simon, Jack Kirby's regular co-conspirator, he wrote the introduction to the first DC hardcover collection of the Newsboy and Guardian strips. It was published about 10 or 12 years ago. And in that, he talks about an encounter with a, a young policeman when he was quite young himself and how he was struck by the badge, the shield that the policeman wore. And this influenced, you know, Joe admits this almost subconsciously, influenced the creation of the Guardian and how he looked. And also, Joe himself worked amongst a group of newsboys when he was a boy. He'd seen them around, was sort of struck by them, aware of their hard life, but the need to bring in money to the family home during difficult times at this point in America. Joe was himself a newsboy. Yeah. And the characters came around because Joe and Jack were about to be conscripted, you know, go off to war during WW2. And they built up a backlog of artwork of the Boy Commandos, which was the other kid gang that they did for DC. So much artwork was built up that their editor, Jack Libowitz, commented, a lot of these kids, they all look the same. What if we change the look of them? They can always pass off as other characters. And that's basically what they did. So the way Joe tells it in his book is that the Newsboy Legion comic strip came about basically because... They had a surplus of Boy Commandos strips, so they just reworked them, created the new characters. So that's how the Newsboy Legion was born. Yeah. Now, there were four members of the Newsboy Legion. We had Gabby, who was a small boy with dark hair, who talked a lot, hence his name. There was Scrapper, who was a small boy with red hair, wore a cap. He was a bit more rough and tumble. There was Big Words, who was a taller kid with glasses, the clever one, essentially. And there was Tommy, who was the most ordinary, I suppose, the most regular kid. And the Guardian, we should talk about the Guardian's uniform. Yeah. Very distinctive. Blue unitard, yellow shorts, yellow boots, a yellow helmet, I suppose golden helmet. And, as we've discussed already, he carried a shield. 
So now we're going to start the low-key, gradual, quick <laughs> walk through <laughs> the issues which Jack did for Jimmy Olsen. Issue 133, and don't worry, listeners, I'm not going to blind you with a whole list of publication dates. But issue 133 basically starts off with Jimmy Olsen meeting the newsboys. Yeah. Scrapper, Big Words, Tommy, Gabby, and their new pal, Flipper Dipper, who we will probably talk about in a moment. And mm-hmm. they're introduced basically as being the sons of the original newsboys, because yeah. the adults, they don't pop up until issue 135. But that's interesting because I think in the modern comics, I can't remember when it was, I think it might have been that aforementioned Superman annual, it's established that the, the younger newsboys who are cutting about, as we see in Glasgow in the present day, mm-hmm. they're clones of the original. Yeah. But that's not something that's stated throughout Jack's Jimmy Olsen run. No. The boys are identical. Yeah, to the 40s version. Yeah. Throughout the series, you see that there are clones of, of Gabby working in communications in, the, in, the, mm-hmm. in what became Cadmus as the DNA project. There are lots of cloned little... But they don't. it's interesting because they don't use the term clone. They use the term replica. Uh-huh. There's lots of little replica versions of, of Scrapper as soldiers. Mm-hmm. That's right, yeah. It's almost there on the surface, but not quite stated. The hint that they mm-hmm. might be yeah. duplicates as well. So that's quite interesting. Flipper mm-hmm. Dipper is the first black member of the Newsboy Legion. And I hate to say it, he's almost caricature. The, the caricature styling that the Newsboys have drawn mm. in, it doesn't really favour him too well. Right. I think that's one element of the story that hasn't aged especially well. Yeah, it's still progressive for the time. It's terrific, yeah. Because people moan about things being woke these days and, oh yeah, diversity, forced diversity, blah, blah, blah. Back in 1970, Jack Kirby looked at this and thought, this isn't hugely representative. Yes. He makes it up a bit, so yep. let's introduce a person of colour in, onto the team and that's, Absolutely. that's fine. Yeah. Give him this personality quirk where he's always wearing a wetsuit because, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's why he's called Flipper Dipper. It's because he's got these flippers on his feet. <laughs> yeah, he's into scuba diving and he does it at every available opportunity and Jack gives him plenty of available opportunities. It's just, what I mean is it's, it's a slight unfortunate side effect of the, the way that the boys are drawn, mm-hmm. sort of caricature It's I mean, he's nowhere near as bad as the as the way that the spirits sidekick. Yes, I was going to say, uh-huh. Just the way he is sort of portrayed in the 40s. It's, yeah. it's light years away from that. And as you say, it's, it's a good mm-hmm. bit of positive representation. When and when such things just happened and people, you know, naturally, and people didn't feel the need to shout about them to the yes. same extent that they do nowadays. <laughs> Look what we're doing. There were no letters written into DC saying, how dare you, this is all political correctness gone mad. <laughs> exactly. And we'll, we'll talk, on, obviously, about such things further when we do issue 87 of Green Lantern in a few months. Mm-hmm. The first issue, 133, also introduces to the Hares and their habitat and of the wild area. And we also meet Morgan Edge. Now, this is what I was going to ask you. Does Morgan Edge crop up in any of the other stuff? He does. Now, right. interestingly, when Jack created all this stuff, basically no one really took him up on it. No one really like, used any of his concepts and ideas apart from in Lois Lane. Ah, the editorial team at Lois Lane decided to use Morgan Edge a lot more, and I think they actually—I can't remember—I think they introduced the idea that the original Morgan Edge was kidnapped, and this was a replacement who was a, a dark side kind of stooge who had replaced Morgan Edge. Interesting. This, you know, honourable businessman. Honestly, mm. they didn't want him to be a bad guy. Yeah, that ran through a lot of the stories in Lois Lane at the time. Interesting. Concurrently with the Thorn. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, later on, he was just basically the head of Galaxy Communications. Yes. And pop cropped up from time to time. Yeah, and I'm sure he's still used to this day. I'm sure, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, as we've said in the past, I've kind of more or less lost touch with contemporary modern comics, what's currently being published. I'm looking forward to the JSA and Stargirl series starting. 
so I've no idea the last time Morgan was used. But I remember him being around in the, the core period when I was yeah. reading Superman in the 90s and the 2000s. I always thought that when Justice League International started, it would be more interesting to have Morgan Edge ah. instead of Maxwell Lord, an actual established character. That is interesting. Because it's basically, it's almost, mm. you could argue it's pretty much the same character. Yeah. And obviously, Maxwell Lord gets his powers, etc., etc. Yeah, that is interesting. Ooh. When we write our DC comic, yeah. we can have a parallel universe in which Morgan Edge forms his own Justice League. Or we write a four-issue miniseries about the relation, in a Jeffrey Archer style about the relationship between Morgan Edge and Maxwell Lord. I don't want to do anything in a Jeffrey Archer style. <laughs> we'll get Kevin Maguire to draw it for us and it'll be amazing. Of course. So issue 134, which is a, a lovely Neil Adams cover, continues the stuff with the, the Hades and Wild Area. And the amazing idea of the Mountain of Judgment being this sort of massive juggernaut and wheels. But it also has some really trippy photo collage stuff. Yeah. Which, mm-hmm. compare it to anything else that DC is doing, and it's like, it's at this point, it's like, yeah. it's, it's out there, it's tremendous. Because Jack had done some of that in his uh, Fantastic Four stories as well. Of course. Yeah. Exactly. It's the sort of thing I'd like to see more of. Quite frankly, <laughs> yeah. bring back photo collages because we get a few of them through this series. Issue one hundred and thirty-five, published on the twenty-fourth of November, nineteen seventy. That's the one that brings back the Guardian properly. Mm-hmm. Yay! We were introduced to the the Evil Factory, which is basically a sort of, as it sounds, a sort of evil version of the the DNA project. And listeners, I'm being very loose and vague with my descriptions here. The basic notes because if we do it properly in depth, we'll be here all day. <laughs> And this, as I said earlier, is the issue where we properly meet the adult newsboys who are all scientists, all grown up and working at the mm-hmm. project. We're introduced to, to Olsen replicas. One of them meets Jimmy and is really quite impressed to meet the original. Jimmy's appalled at all this sort of stuff, but Superman's very sage about it. He takes it all in his stride. This issue sort of finishes with the, <laughs> the unleashing of a sort of basically a giant green Jimmy Olsen. Jolly green Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, and the Guardian, I mean, there's a couple of fantastic pages when they basically sort of talk about how they don't use the term clone, as I've said, but they have this replica, this newly created version of the Guardian who has all the memories mm-hmm. of the original. And without everything kicking off in the project, he's sort of agitating to be released. And they talk about how he has the, the memories of the original. Mm-hmm. He's created from tissue samples from the original who was shot and killed, apparently quite mm-hmm. recently. But this one frustrating thing I found about it was the, the Guardian is very underused. Mm-hmm. He appears in a few issues. There are plot elements which are hinted at and just not followed up on. And it's it's a real shame. So it's kind of, it's nice to remember that he was used so well in the, the 90s and the 2000s because it almost makes up for it. So indeed, issue 136, the Guardian is properly involved fighting with the... The, the giant green Jimmy. There's an interesting moment where he's referred to as Model 1 because there are a few sort of backup, tiny mm-hmm. back, short backup stories later on, which I think one of them even features a Model 4. All right, okay. I mean, it's clear that Jack was just had ideas going yeah. spare at this point. You know, they were pouring out of his head. Yeah. We also meet the character of Dubilex in issue 136. Yes. Who's, again, someone that was used an awful lot in the, the 90s uh-huh. Superman and Superboy yeah. and t- 2000s comics. So it's quite nice seeing him, actually. It's when he pops up. It's, oh, issue 137. The term DN alien is introduced, basically, for all these mm-hmm. monsters that are created at the, this DNA factory. And yeah. It's obvious that Kirby has a lot of fun drawing them. Again, this mm-hmm. is what I mean when it says it feels like a kind of Marvel throwback at times. Yeah. Issue 137 is the one with some more sort of collaging because the newsboys and some of their characters are listening to sort of mental music. 
they sort of use this machinery which doesn't play music as such, but it vibes with them and creates sort of images in their head. So there are some stunning mm-hmm. pages of people just sort of floating around <laughs> yeah. amongst these sort yeah. of collages. That's quite an interesting one. Issue 138, I've written my notes here, very Kirby. Uh-huh. Morgan Edge is really a baddie at this point. He's trying to leave Metropolis because it's about to be you know, blown up because they're going to blow up the DNA project. He's- Darkseid <laughs> has appeared on a few monitor screens and such things. And it's obvious that Morgan's working for him. We will talk about Darkseid further, I feel, in a, in a much later episode. Mm. Superman is terrific in issue 130. And it's this is probably the point where we should talk about how DC high-ups weren't very happy with the way Jack rendered him and Jimmy. That's right, yes. So artists like, you know, Vinnie Coletta, Murphy Anderson and, and Neil Adams and some of the covers would basically redraw Superman and Jimmy's faces so that they mm-hmm. looked more like the traditional versions. The of, house style, as it were, yeah. Yeah. It's almost like that way when they got Tom Palmer to ink everything for Marvel at certain points in the 80s, so that Avengers and yeah. New Mutants look exactly the same, despite the fact they had different pencilers. <laughs> this is the one where it's really, it, first be, it becomes almost jarring mm-hmm. that Jack's stuff is just so stylized, so full-on Kirby, yeah. and yet you have a regular Jimmy and Superman face. It's, it's very, very trippy. Uh-huh. It's almost surreal, actually. I mean, it's a proper, you get a proper juxtaposition. One thing that's, as I said, that the deeper I got into these comics, the more I enjoyed. And this part, this part of it was some. It was almost like live action versions of Superman and Jimmy were being like almost green screened into a cartoon. <laughs> sure, yeah, that's what it feels like. Yeah, it's it's so lurid. It's terrific. Issue one hundred and thirty nine is when Clark meets the Guardian, and that's quite interesting. Mm-hmm. A bit of a chat about the Guardian's relationship with the original. And we're also introduced to a character who recurs throughout the rest of the series, who is one particular unique individual little cloned soldier version of Scrapper. Uh-huh. So he basically lives in Scrapper's pocket for the duration, and he's tremendous. <laughs> Issue one three nine is quite funny because Gabby is a cold, <laughs> so they're not able to. The newsboys aren't able to go off on the the adventure, um, and this is the one where Clark is tricked into you know a sort of weird space capsule looking thing and gets transported elsewhere. Uh-huh. And it's also the first of two issues featuring <laughs> featuring the comedian Don Rickles, which led to the famous cover of issue 141, which has the, the caption at the top, Kirby says, don't ask, just buy it. <laughs> <laughs> and as the photo cover of Superman and the Guardian rushing towards the reader, holding a, a photograph of, of Don Rickles as the other Rickles character that they introduce and Jimmy run behind them. I don't know very much about Don Rickles. Do you know much about Don Rickles? I know nothing at all about Don Rickles. He's, <laughs> he wasn't on the radar over here, I'll be honest. Yeah. Apologies to any Don Rickles fans in the States. <laughs> now, we don't know much about Don Rickles, as we say, but helpfully, Mark Ivani's introduction to the, the Jimmy Olsen trade talks about how he and Steve Sherman were big fans of the Don Rickles comedian and suggested to Jack that, that he could cameo. Apparently, they contacted Rickles' press agent to get permission to do it, so it was all legit. Sure. And apparently, it was a little divisive. Don Rickles himself wasn't too happy about the way it turned out, but... Right. It's a fascinating thing to think about. like, And I suppose it ties in with our, our chat about Twiggy yeah. appearing as a, as a real-life person and such things in the past. And the cover to issue 141 was homaged many years later on the cover of an issue of Superman, Man of Steel. So look out for that one in the socials over the next few days, listeners. So, Yay. further than issue 139, the boys go exploring. So issue 140 is an all-reprint issue. It doesn't feature any new stories by Jack or anything. But issue 141 is the issue which continues the Rickles story, but it's also the one for Clark out in space meets Light Ray, Yay. which is actually quite exciting when it happens. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure if this is before or after the publication of issue one of Forever People, but that also is when Superman starts to interact more with 
everything that Kirby was doing in, in the sort of fourth world sort of style. Yeah. And the rest of issue 141 can basically be boiled down to the Guardian versus Intergang. Mm-hmm. The Guardian and Jimmy being involved in these sort of, you know, very urban sort of stories. It's a nice contrast with the rest of it. Issue 142, this is the man from Transylvania story. <laughs> <laughs> Where Morgan Edge's secretary, Miss Conway, the beautiful Miss Conway, is afflicted by long-distance vampirism. As you do. There's a bit of chat in the... Mark Ivani introductions to these collections where he talks about the, the slight relaxation of the comic code at this point. Mm-hmm. And it's basically an excuse for Jack to draw a couple of issues of Superman fighting like Frankenstein's monster and Yay. Dracula and yeah. the Wolfman. It's already distracting. Mm-hmm. Now, 142 continues the, the Newsboys' underground explorations. I was reading this all through and sort of going, what? <laughs> <laughs> because the boys end up basically in the underground den after, after one of them finds out a ladder and they climb up it and stuff. They basically end up in a room with a guy who's very conveniently, just as they arrive, <laughs> having a telephone conversation with someone else in Intergang. And he basically, this guy, we don't get his name, but he reiterates, I'll say it again, see, I shot and killed Jim Harper. And the newsboys all stand frowning behind him and then he turns around as he hangs up. <laughs> It's fascinating that he has this important conversation, which is a complete revelation. Mm-hmm. This is the guy that killed the original version of The Guardian. Yeah. And the kids have got him, and there's chat about him, about them bringing him to justice. But basically, he gets away, runs off through this weird underground lair that he's got, comes up to a sort of video screen where he talks to another member of Intergang over the video screen, who then basically triggers a bomb that blows him up. So it's... It's quite frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's really frustrating that it's set up and this guy's then killed because it doesn't really get resolved. It's not that they go in and do any yeah. further investigating. There's uh-huh. not a scene where they tell the new version of the Guardian that they've learned what happened to his yeah. his original. His predecessor's killer, yeah. Yeah, it's like what I said about the amount of ideas that Jack was having. Maybe they're a little undisciplined. Mm-hmm. Some nice pages of the kids sort of reacting and Scrapper worrying about his little pocket trooper, but the boys basically climb back out of this guy's den and find that they're back in Metropolis. And this is all coinciding with what Superman and Jimmy are up to. That happens. The, the guy gets killed in issue 143. Issue 144 is a visit to Scotland, essentially. Yay! Yes, and it's, if it's one thing we like in this podcast, it's comics where superheroes visit Scotland. Of course. Is the amazing image of Scrapper in a kilt, <laughs> which is really funny. It's wonderful. And an interesting sequence where Superman and the Guardian visit the Cosmic Carousel, Mm -hmm. which is a sort of very trippy nightclub where they have some trouble with the group calling themselves the San Diego Five String Mob, which I'm not sure if it was Jack sort of passing his comment on what modern music was all around. But these guys are basically sort of involved with the fourth world stuff as well. Mm -hmm. It's another one I just feel like Jack had an idea but didn't really run through with it. Yeah. The boys visit Scotland because Morgan Edge sends Jimmy there to investigate stories about a lake monster. This is continues into issue 145, which is the famous Brigadoom issue. Yay. Which again features lots of monsters and everyone gets sort of shrunk down so that they're all the same size as the Scrapper Trooper and he has a bit more interaction with his own actual original Scrapper, which is a lot of fun. They're quite good. Mm-hmm. Issue 145 and 146 tie up the whole evil factory idea and the two bad guys that are sort of in Dark Seeds employ that are creating all the monsters that have caused trouble throughout the series. And 146 ends with the evil factory being destroyed. Jimmy gets devolved into something called Homo Disastrous. <laughs> so it's just another excuse for another monstrous version of Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. And significantly, issue 146 is the last time the Guardian appears. Okay. 
And he basically bows out having a conversation with Dubalex and Superman and another beautiful Jack Kirby lady called Terry Dean because the Guardian has been investigating the tunnels that the, the five the San Diego mob escaped into and Dubalex talks about how these mm-hmm. tunnels are strange because they open up into boom tubes. And that's basically it. The Guardian disappears. We don't get any resolution to the who killed him. And, you know, I don't think we see the actual proper Guardian again for a very long time. Yeah. It's a little bit dissatisfying from that point of view. Yeah. But again, it gives me... The sense that Jack was basically making up as he went along. Yeah. Well, if anyone could, it's Jack Kirby. Yeah. <laughs> Issue 147 and 48, there's almost like two parallel storylines running through them. Uh-huh. Initially, Superman goes off to Supertown yeah. and encounters. He encounters a character called, who I'd never met before, called Magner, who is basically, his colour scheme, he looks like Orion, but his colour scheme is kind of flipped from Doctor Fate. He's kind uh-huh. of yellow and blue. And then Supes meets Highfather, basically. And Highfather returns Superman to Earth, where Superman ties in with the other plot that runs through the last couple of issues, which is when the boys are crossing the Atlantic and get drawn down into a large volcano and meet a character called Victor Volcanium, (laughs) who to me was just like such a a Marvel villain, you know, early 60s Marvel throwback villain. It was unbelievable. Victor was a hot air balloonist who was marooned in this volcano years ago and has built up, you know, robots and a small civilization. And he's very, very tall. And it's just like, it's almost like Jack sort of brainstorms things and ideas and it just puts them all together without sort of thinking about how coherent they might yeah. be. But it works. Oh, yeah, that does. You're reading it going, wow. Uh-huh. And basically, issue 148, which is the final issue that Jack worked on under a gorgeous Neil Adams cover, which I think was actually. If memory serves, was the first one of this run that I bought. Mm. My copy has a, a seven and a half pence Thorpe and Porter price sticker. It's a 52 page issue, and we'll talk more about the 52 page issues before too long. Issue 148, the final one, Jack and Jack's run, published on the 17th of February 1972, so that's basically a year and a half he was on Jimmy Olsen. Yeah. Issue 148 basically deals with Superman rescuing everyone from Victor Volcanium. I mean, there's a, a real interesting thing that I noticed reading this final issue is that if you have your copy to hand, listeners, look at page 19 of issue 148, and does that not look like mid-80s Keith Giffen to you? I thought I was reading, you know, an issue of the five years later Legion of Superheroes at, at a couple of points, you know. you could de- Page 19, is it? Yeah, page 19 of 148. Do you see what I mean? Oh, yes. Yes, without a doubt. See that second panel, that second panel especially. And a third. Yeah, and then if you go to page 21 as well. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. So basically, they, they trick Victor Volcanium and there's a massive explosion. That's all you really need to know. <laughs> it's very abrupt. He sort of blows up and Superman gets a line that says, and so ends Volcanium's, I've been mispronouncing his name, so ends Volcanium's madness. And then they basically sort of roar off into the sunset. And that's basically it. I'm going to read to you now the, the final letter from the letters page of issue 148, which goes like this. Dear Editor, your books for DC have thus far, in my opinion, been rather brilliant in concept, yet sorely lacking in execution. There has been little doubt in my mind that this has been due to the fact that you're pushing yourself too hard and too quickly. Obviously, this addressed to Jack. Mm -hmm. In short, your heavy workload has precluded the possibility of any serious consideration of any of your books as individual units. Each issue of Jimmy Olsen has been... Heretofore, a simple comic apparently designed for no other purpose than to advance your new Genesis Apocalypse series one small step forward. And that's true. Reading through them, there are hints about what's going on in this other stuff. But as I said to Peter in our prep, you really get the sense that, you know, a lot of other stuff is happening off camera that you're not really privy to. The letter continues, Jimmy has been a supporting character in his own book. And that, that's reason, a reasonable assertion. Mm-hmm. Not so fortunate with Olsen 144, a true classic in the Kirby style and what a style. Separating Superman from the youths 
was a much-needed innovation, one I hope becomes permanent. Further, I am interested in seeing what Dubilex has brought to the attention of the Man of Steel. And then there is the San Diego five-string mob. Yes, I was at the San Diego Comic Con too, so I wonder if that was a uh-huh, referencing. could be. All in all, this issue promises many interesting things to come, blah, blah, blah. It's from a chap called Matt Graham in Granada Hills, California. And the editorial response says, Jack feels he's extended himself a bit too far too. He's fallen a bit behind in his schedule, so he's turning this mag over to Joe Orlando with the next issue. He needs more time for his other mags, including a new one he has in the works. So this is published in 72, so Jimmy sort of reverts almost to type with the next issue, runs on for another year or two, and then metamorphosizes into Superman Family. And we will be doing a lot of stories from Superman Family as we progress in the podcast. Which is interesting, Jack deciding to concentrate on the other stuff. That's probably a reference to the titles that followed. Yes. For example, the, I think The Demon was the next of his main titles. Okay. The first issue of that came out on the 22nd of June, 1972. Right. Obviously that didn't last as long as Commandy, but it certainly preceded Commandy because the first issue of Commandy was on the 29th of August, 1972, so obviously he was working on both of those sure. at the same time as he was winding up the other Fourth World stuff. And of course, other titles wound up. Uh, Forever People finished at 11. Yep. That was the 1st of August, 1972. New Gods itself initially wound up at 11. That was the 17th of August, 1972. Mr. Miracle kept going, which is good. That's my favourite out of all of them. Yeah, because Mr. Miracle, I remember seeing issues that that were contemporary to the to the Demon and Commandy and stuff. Mm-hmm. But then, of course, as, as David said earlier on, he watched in The Losers. That started off in Our Fighting Forces, issue 151. That was 23rd of July, 1974. That came out. 74? 74, yeah. That's quite a gap. Wow. It is. And then, just before that, actually, he started on another very underrated project, which I really enjoy, OMAC. Yes. That was 18th of June, 74. OMAC, which is a weird sort of riff on Shazam in many ways. Yeah. I know what you mean. Uh-huh. We'll have to figure out, yes, yeah, so if we can justify giving an episode to Omar, because I think it may be a lot of fun. We'll see. We'll see how we go. Oh, we'll figure something out. <laughs> and of course, we should mention Jack Kirby's 1970s version of The Sandman, because we're going to be covering that in the podcast eventually. First issue that was published in 1974, but the rest of the series came out the following year. So look out for that one, listeners, when it comes. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that the new God stuff kind of wound up, but they obviously kept him around. Mm, mm-hmm. And I think it's fair to say that, as we did mention earlier, that the legacy of what Jack did at DC is huge because you know the Guardian and Jubilex and Cadmus, as the DNA project became, were massive parts of what was going on in the Superman and Superboy titles in the 90s and 90s. Yeah. The new gods, every so often, they will try and relaunch them. Darkseid, or Darkseid, however you pronounce it, He's kind of evolved into Superman's major big bad yeah. over the years, which is strange. DC Universe big bad. I mean, I remember him being the architect of everything that happened in the Legends miniseries. That was the first time that, that I encountered him, which was mm-hmm. a great comic. That was phenomenal, yeah. Mr. Miracle joined the Justice League, that sort of stuff. Commandy still endures to this day. That, you know, mm-hmm. ran for years after Jack left it. Yep. Again, is another one that, that pops up every so often. Mm-hmm. You know, while a lot of the series didn't last for terribly long, yeah. In comparison, you, they've been incorporated and folded into mm-hmm. everything in DC, I think, you know, yeah. really, really well. Even when they launched the New 52, they had an OMAC series, and that was actually one of the best series. No one bought it, but it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I even remember an issue, a late issue of Commandy. Uh-huh. Commandy turned into an OMAC. <laughs> yeah. Commandy's a series I've always meant to dig further into, because it's obviously yeah. kind of riffing in the whole Planet of the Apes post-apocalyptic yeah. thing that was so popular in the early 70s. I remember having one of the issues of Brave and the Bold that he was in when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. So basically, the characters Jack created when he came back to DC in the Bronze Age have endured yes, and will endure. I think so. They'll outlast us. 
<laughs> I think so. That's that's very, very fair. So, now, as this is the Earth 2 podcast, we have to address the other thing. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Olsen and Superman being present and the new gods and all that being present very much part of the contemporary DC stylings. This is, essentially, this is Earth 1. So this is another one, mm-hmm. it seems, where the Guardian and the Newsboy Legion were active on Earth 1. Yes. The further and further we get into this, the more we realise that Roy Thomas deciding that every Golden Age character was on Earth 2 when he did All-Star Squadron is the biggest... <laughs> biggest continuity muck-up ever. <laughs> Was Roy Thomas singularly responsible for the need for Christ and Infinite Earths? Discuss. Today, in this TED Talk, I will assert that. Anyway, so similarly to the way we talked about Vigilante recently and, and you know, mm-hmm. and also, I suppose, our assertions about there being an Earth 1 Wildcat, the fact that we're seeing The Guardian and The Newsboys and the original Newsboys and the top original Guardian appearing in the same space as, if you like, as Superman and Jimmy Olsen, who are very much Earth-1 contemporaries. I'm prepared to assert at this moment the Guardians and the Newsboys were on Earth-1. What do you say to that? I would agree with that wholeheartedly. In fact, that point's actually raised in the letters pages. Yes, I would hope so too. In issue 139. Right. There's a chap called Stephen Utley. He goes into this in detail. He says, Presumably, you're aware of the parallel world setup, first described in the classic Flash of Two Worlds of Flash 123. And what wasn't that thing? Uh, now on Earth 1 dwell the various members of the Justice League of America, while Earth 2 is inhabited by the Justice Society of America. Now dig this. Superman and Jimmy, although not without their Golden Age counterparts, live on Earth 1. What does this have to do with the Dark Side Chronicles? Well, in its history of the comics, Jim Steranko mentions a Boy Commandos yarn published in Detective Comics 79. Ah, yes. In which the Commandos, the Newsboy Legion, the Guardian and Sandman of Justice Society all teamed up. Mm. Sure, I agree it's a minor point, but I just had to bring it to your attention before somebody beat me to it. As I said, that's from Stephen Utley in Garland, Texas. And the editorial response from Ian Elson Bridwell says, OK, since there is a Superman on each Earth, and a Batman too... Why not a Newsboy Legion on each? Ah. So there we are. So yes, that's it. Straight from the editor's mouth. Secondary source. Yep. Letters page. Yeah, that's fair. I really want to read that Boy Commandos Newsboy crossover yeah. story now. I think as soon as we finish recording, I'm going to go off and read it. And then I'm probably going to text Peter and say, do you think we should do this? Do you think we should do this story? <laughs> I don't know. Now, the Golden Age Newsboy Legion stories have all been reprinted in a couple of hardcovers. And the Golden Age Boy Commando stories have been reprinted in a couple of hardcovers. That's correct. And, yeah, they are really, really, really nice reproductions of the stories. So check them out if you can, if you get a chance. And amusingly... In a very similar style to the Dan Richards Manhunter story we did a few episodes ago, mm-hmm. there's a story with a duplicate evil bad guy dressing up to pretend to be the Guardian. <laughs> Jim has a cold and has to put on his costume and rush out and, and deal with stuff. Oh no, don't you hate it when that happens? Because the, fa- the fascinating thing about those stories, of course, is that the Guardian, they call him the Guardian because he's kind of the Guardian of Suicide Slum, he kind of, and, and he looks after the Newsboy Legion mm-hmm. whilst pretending to them that he's not Jim Harper. <laughs> Part of the fun, obviously, reading those stories is the kids trying to sort of... Prove that he is, yeah. You are Jim Harper, aren't you? No, I'm not Jim Harper, scrapper. <laughs> You've got a, a shaving cut on your chin, Jim Harper. Yeah. I'm sure in one of the stories, there's a, it might be the secret origins, Jim has a bit of elastoplast on his chin. Yeah. To cover up the fight he got, you know, the injury he got <laughs> when he was fighting as the Guardian, and Scrapper and Gabby are like, hey, that means, and he's like, no, no. So they're a lot of fun, you know, the, the Golden Age Newsboy Legion stories, they're worth checking out. Indeed. If we find one where, it, where they get transported to a parallel dimension, we'll do it as a, a flashback story. We will. So yes, that was a great letter we got there from Stephen Utley. If you want to write to us for the great letter, you can email us at the at gmail.com. Make sure you follow us on social media. 
because we'll be putting up some interesting content for this Kirby-tastic, bombastic content. Yes, lots to come. We haven't read any stories this week, but I'm going to post a few a few of the covers from this series, a few foreign covers from this series. As I may have mentioned earlier, a couple of homage covers, and I've tracked down a couple of dozen foreign reprint covers mm. of some of these stories as well, So, and as well as some other Guardian and Newsboy-related stuff. We'll put all of this up on the socials just to brighten your day as usual over the next week or so. Indeed, if you want to see that and more... On Facebook and Instagram, we're at the Earth 2 Podcast, and on Twitter, we're at podcast underscore Earth 2. And you can find this and all the other episodes on our website, and that is theearth2podcast.com. If you're feeling generous, you can go to wherever it is you receive your podcast and leave us a positive review. That would be lovely. If you're feeling more generous, you could go to our coffee page and buy Peter the price of a beverage. That would be even more and more lovely. But failing that, thank you for listening. Yes, thank you. And on that note, I've been Peter. And I've been David. Take care. We'll see you soon on... The Earth, Earth 2, 2 Podcast. Transmatter Cube activated. Return coordinate set for Earth Prime. Oops, a daisy. My ring caught in the, the decade old sellotape. <laughs>